My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about the latest health policy book that the Cato Institute has published. It is titled Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works, Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped. You know, when doctors make mistakes, it can be devastating for patients, obviously. It can also be devastating for doctors. We have a medical malpractice system that exists to compensate injured patients, patients who are injured as a result of a physician's malpractice, but also that exists to deter malpractice uh, by physicians. There's a fierce debate, however, about whether the medical malpractice liability system works. And in that debate, anecdotes often substitute for data. So at the Cato Institute, we were very excited to publish uh, to publish this book. It, it has uh, a uh, a collection of politically diverse co-authors. There's five of them, Bernard Black, Meng Yo Paik, David Hyman, Charlie Silver, and Bill Sage, four of them law professors, one economics professor. One of them is here with us today to present the findings from this book, which is really a compilation of, a, of more than a decade of peer-reviewed articles from law journals looking at what actually happens in the medical malpractice system. but. Through this book, they have made the, their findings accessible to an audience that would prefer not to read law journals. And to moderate the discussion that we're, we're having today, we're very pleased to have with us uh, a, a physician who knows something about these medical malpractice debates, Dr. William Frist. Bill Frist is a nationally acclaimed heart and lung transplant surgeon. You may know him better as a former U.S. Senator who represented the state of Tennessee in the U.S. Senate from 1994 to 2006, and who in 2003 rose to become majority leader of the U.S. Senate, a position he held until his voluntary retirement from the Senate in 2007. Dr. Frist was, in, was instrumental in the passage of the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003 and other legislation. Among other activities, he currently serves as an adjunct professor of cardiac surgery at Vanderbilt University, co-chair of the Health Project at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and host of his own podcast, which is titled A Second Opinion. We're, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Frist in just a moment. He's going to introduce our speakers, then lead a discussion between them about uh, the findings of this book, and then we're going to open the floor to questions from the audience. You can submit your questions via uh, the Cato webpage, via Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Please always use the hashtag Cato Books so that we'll uh, be able to uh, capture your questions and hopefully pose them uh, uh, to our panelists. Uh, with that, I will go ahead and turn things over to Dr. Frist. Bill? Michael, thank you. And it's a real honor to, to be with uh, both of our, our panelists uh, today. And let me go ahead and introduce both of them, and then we'll hear from um, uh, Dr. David Hyman um, for the first presentation. Uh, Professor David Hyman is a doctor, Ginsburg professor of health law and policy at Georgetown University Law Center and an adjunct scholar with the Cato Institute. In addition to co-authoring the book and it's entitled Medical Malpractice Litigation and that's the focus of today's discussion. Professor Hyman is the author of two other pieces, Medicare Meets Mephistopheles, and co-author of Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. 
He teaches or has taught healthcare regulation and civil procedure and insurance and medical malpractice, law and economics and professional responsibility and tax policy. Also with us is Dr. Richard E. Anderson. For more than 15 years, Dr. Anderson has been the chairman and CEO of the Doctors Company. The Doctors Company is the nation's largest physician-owned medical malpractice insurer. He was a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and is past chairman of the Department of Medicine at Scripps Memorial Hospital, where he served as senior oncologist for 18 years. Dr. Anderson is the editor of Medical Malpractice, a Physician's a Source Book. So Dr. Hyman, Dr. Anderson, uh, welcome uh, to you both. And we'll first hear from Dr. Hyman uh, with the response to be followed by Dr. Anderson. Dr. David Hyman. Uh, so thank you for that uh, generous introduction, Dr. Frist. Um, and thank you for doing this. Uh, and thanks to Dr. Anderson as well. He's already indicated to me we have significant disagreements, so I'm looking forward uh, to airing those out uh, and also hearing from the audience. Uh, let me just share my uh, screen, uh, hopefully briefly, because I have a couple of slides because um, I wanted to show some data along the way. Uh, as you would heard, the title of the book is Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works and Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped. Uh, and I've, we have co-authors from Northwestern University, Hanyang University, I'm at Georgetown, uh, and uh, both uh, Bill Sage and Charlie Silver at the University of Texas. And as you heard, this uh, is basically uh, a series, is based on a series of papers that were published in peer-reviewed uh, law, economics, and health policy journals uh, that we uh, standardized the data set and tried to make it much more accessible. So you won't find regression tables, thank goodness. Uh, we tried to use figures uh, and tables to convey uh, what we had found. Uh, and so what did we find? Uh, well, just a brief overview of the book. Uh, it's divided into four parts. Uh, the first part focuses on Texas during the pre-reform period. Texas enacted tort reform effective for cases filed uh, in 2003 and later, uh, but Texas is also one of the states that has a comprehensive database of medical malpractice claims. And so we use that to study all of the issues that you can see described. Uh, we then in part two, look at what happens in Texas after tort reform gets enacted. Uh, and then in part three, obviously Texas is a big state full of people who are proud of it. Uh, but it's only one state. And the obvious question is, is it representative? And so we used uh, national data from primarily the National Practitioner Data Bank uh, to study some of the same questions uh, that we studied in part two. And then finally, part four is our uh, summary and conclusions. So let me just start uh, by flagging the real issue that uh, physicians are concerned with, which are medical malpractice crises marked by sudden and dramatic increases in their malpractice premiums. And this is a figure from the book. It shows you the percentage increase in the malpractice premiums charged by basically every major medical malpractice insurer that was writing business in Texas at the beginning of the latest malpractice crisis, which was in the sort of 2000, 2001 timeframe. 
And you can see a dramatic increase, the left scale, you know, we're talking 100% increase over a relatively short period of time. And that causes real stress for physicians who are used to having premiums be at one level, and then they suddenly go up by 100% or sometimes more. Now, this is an average. It can be higher for certain specialties, especially high-risk specialties. Um, so Texas enacts a cap, and what happens? Well, caps, it turns out, have a very substantial effect on both the number of paid claims and also the amount that's paid to resolve those claims. So this is a figure from the book. Uh, the top darker line is the number of large paid claims per capita per 100,000 population, which is on the left axis. And this vertical line here in 2003 is when Texas enacts a cap. And the lower line is the payout per large paid claim. Texas's cap, cap non-economic damages. There's some complexities to it. It's not just a simple flat cap, uh, but basically it imposed a pretty substantial binding constraint on non-economic damages, which affects both tried cases and settled cases. And this figure includes all cases. Relatively few medical malpractice cases go to trial, but the settled cases are settled in the shadow of expectations about what will happen. And so what you see is a pretty dramatic decline in both the number of claims, the top line, and the payout per claim, the bottom line, after Texas enacts a cap. And you can see at the bottom of the slide, a 60% drop in claims and a 42% drop in payout per claim with a combined effect of 75% drop in per capita payouts. So caps do work, they have a big impact. The question is, what else do they do besides reduce payouts? And at the end, will that fix the problems that have already been alluded to with the medical malpractice system? So let me show you one other slide, and then I'll put up some more words because law professors know that a picture beats a thousand words. We just prefer the thousand words. Uh, so this, this picture, uh, looks at physician supply, right? One of the things you often hear in debates over tort reform is doctors are leaving. We should enact a cap on damages to keep the doctors we have and attract new doctors. And this slide is our analysis of that issue in Texas, where the same basic structure, the vertical line over here to the right indicates Texas enacting tort reform and the lines that you see here are two different measures of the number of direct patient care physicians, both the absolute number and the number per capita per 100,000 population. So if tort reform has a dramatic impact or a significant impact on physician supply, you would expect these lines to bend upwards to the right of this vertical line. And we don't find that effect. Basically, we see continuation of the pre-existing trends. Now, this is Texas only, and this is all direct patient care physicians. You should obviously consider the possibility that it might have a different effect in other states, and it might have an effect on certain types of physicians, but not on others. We look at those issues as well, and I'm happy to talk about that in the Q&A. But these slides are examples of what you will find in the book uh, 
reflecting our analysis of Texas medical malpractice environment, both pre and post reform. So we draw a series of lessons from all of that. And I just thought I'd sketch it out for you. The first is we don't find evidence that the medical malpractice system is doing a particularly good job. And in fact, we think it's doing a pretty rotten job at the things that we would like it to do. It doesn't adequately compensate people who are entitled to it under our laws. That is negligently injured patients. And the severely injured are the least well compensated. Um, second, Michael alluded to this, it doesn't adequately deter negligence. It doesn't send the right signals to physicians about don't do that because it will cost you money uh, for a variety of reasons. Some of it has to do with people who are negligently injured not bringing claims. And some of it has to do with people who aren't negligently injured bringing claims and then being paid for those claims that shouldn't actually be paid. So we've got a real sort of mismatch problem here. It's also very expensive and time consuming, and it's disliked by everyone involved pretty much across the board. Uh, doctors hate it, uh, and with good reason. Uh, and so, you know, the obvious issue is there's got to be a better way. Um, and what is that? Well, in our view, based on this work, we don't think damage caps are the better way because they don't fix any of the problems we just alluded to. They don't improve compensation. They don't improve deterrence. They don't uh, make the system less expensive or time consuming, except by making cases go away entirely. Um, and it's not obvious why it would change people's dislike of the system. It makes some of those problems worse. Again, let me defer a discussion of that till afterward. Um, the next set of key lessons are sort of equally simple. Premium spikes are real, uh, but we don't find evidence that they're driven by things happening inside the litigation system. That is the number of claims and the payout per claim. Defense costs are going up, but they're not going up enough to drive the sorts of premium spikes that I showed you a slide about earlier. We also find in Texas and elsewhere that paid claims have declined steadily since 2001, which you may remember was when the last malpractice crisis started, and they've been declining even in states that don't cap damages. And the smaller claims, smaller in terms of dollars, not necessarily in terms of severity of injury, have been steadily disappearing from the system because they're no longer worth pursuing in a contingency recovery system. Uh, and MedMal insurance premiums, which went up a lot uh, in the last malpractice crisis, have not surprisingly declined. Uh, and they're now back to the level of the mid-1990s. Uh, and given that we've had three malpractice crises in the last 40 plus years, you should expect that we're likely due for another one reasonably soon. So what should we do? We think we should fix the real problems with the system. Doctors are very worried about the risk of personal bankruptcy. Uh, and we think that there's an easy fix to that. As long as the doctor maintains a reasonable amount of insurance, uh, we don't think there should be any personal liability for above limits exposure. We suggest using a no-fault system for small claims. We think more experimentation, including what are sometimes called apology programs or communication resolution programs, 
are worth experimenting with, along with enterprise liability, rather than making individual physicians be on the hook. We think institutions uh, ought to be more involved and private contracts and safe harbors to keep people from being sued when they've adhered to the standard of care strike us as plausible improvements. And finally, uh, we think we need better incentives to deliver error-free care. This has little to do with malpractice insurance, but a lot to do with how we pay for healthcare. Sometimes we pay more when physicians and healthcare institutions make mistakes. We pay them for the original job, and then we pay them to fix their original mistakes. Um, that's not something you would do if you were dealing with a car mechanic. It's not something you would deal see anywhere outside of the healthcare system. Uh, and it's part of the reasons why our healthcare system uh, has the problems that it does, which is the focus of a different book, Overcharge, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. Uh, so with that, let me stop uh, and uh, turn it over to Dr. Anderson, who can tell you why I'm wrong. <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, it's nice to be with you. And uh, it is a very distinguished uh, book by very distinguished authors. And I'll try in this presentation to highlight where I have disagreements and where there are potential, um, uh, potential agreements that we share as well. So let me get my screen up uh, for you. Take a second. Okay, so this is a major work by exceptionally well-credentialed individuals and are serious problems with the analysis. The book title presumes the wrong predicate. The Texas tort reforms were extremely effective and did exactly what they were designed to do. The reams of data that were subjected to extensive statistical analyses by the authors and their colleagues basically leave us with the conclusion that the earth is flat. The data, in fact, do not comport with the real world and specifically the Texas professional liability environment before and after the tort reforms of 2003. Let's see where we can find common ground and where we might disagree. Um, the authors uh, have proposed uh, seven basic facts. One thing, however, right at the start, which we can absolutely agree on, is that the system of medical malpractice litigation, medical professional liability litigation, is broken. Absolutely, we agree on that. And, uh, and I'll show you some of the ways in which it's broken in just a minute. So the authors present seven basic facts. The medical malpractice system doesn't provide full compensation to negligent injured patients and provides especially poor compensation to those with severe injuries. Answer to that from my point of view, yes, it overcompensates some and undercompensates others. The problem is that our adversarial legal system is a draconian combination of venturism and a lottery. The authors say our medical malpractice system doesn't create appropriate for providers to exercise care. Yes and no. The shame and blame proceedings and the secrecy of, metal, of many settlements incentivizes to sense a defensive medicine. There's no question about that. But to the extent that the notion is that the threat of litigation would lead doctors to practice better medicine, the aversion to 
medical malpractice litigation by physicians is so intense and so universal that if staying out of court were possible to by if was better it was possible to stay out of court by practicing better medicine we doctors would do that universally the real problem is it's not possible to stay out of court in our system regardless of how good the medicine you practice is show you some evidence of that in just a second our medical malpractice system is expensive time consuming and leads to hard feelings yes absolutely damage caps don't fix any of these problems they make some worse well actually damage caps clearly ameliorate the litigation lottery and they lessen the disproportionate burden of premiums on practicing physicians for our four trillion dollar liability uh, for beg your pardon for our four trillion dollar healthcare system physicians pay about 50 percent of all the medical liability premiums for the entire system the burden falls very disproportionately on physicians the authors state that premium spikes are real but can be caused by factors internal to the litigation system well actually not can be that's what they are caused by they're caused by the number of claims the payouts per claim and or defense costs as well as and this is under referred to in the book but i think really under appreciated the long tail of mpl litigation and dysfunctional regulation of the insurance industry contribute to the steepness of the ups and downs it takes three to five years from the day a physician pays premium for protection before the average claim is settled. And yet insurance companies must predict in the premium that they charge what the cost of settlement of claims will be three to five years in the future. When those numbers turn out to be excessive, that is to say the claims costs are, are higher than anticipated by the companies and actuaries and so forth, in most states, one must get regulatory approval from the State Department of Insurance to raise rates. That is, that is a politically fraught process. It's an incremental process and adds years before the risk and liability can match the premium. So you may be looking at five to seven year gap between a surge in claims or excess claims costs or costs of defense and the time when rates can rematch creating a very steep up and down uh, uh, picture. We can quibble about paid claims have declined, but nationwide pay, paid claims started to fall in 2004 um, and have fallen dramatically since that, since that time. And we can talk about why that is. Tort reform is part of the answer, but it's not the whole answer. Um, smaller claims have, according to the authors, not, according to me, out of the system. When we, we rank all, as an insurer, we rank all of our claims in terms of their severity, in other words, the, the, the potential cost of remedy. Um, and in fact, the proportion of very expensive, medium expensive, uh, low cost claims, low, low possible, low probable outcome claims in terms of cost has not changed one bit over this period of time. The vast majority of claims um, are still small dollar claims quote small dollar claims and by the way to them, that that is an issue it's an issue not because of anything that the healthcare system does it's an issue because most contingency fee lawyers won't take cases no matter how valid they might be unless they see a significantly 
uh, and unless they see a worthwhile reward on their investment in time and effort. Uh, it's not that I don't understand their thinking, but that's not really a problem of the insurance companies. That's not a problem that the insurance companies can solve. And it's a problem that the legal system itself has to solve in terms of the, of the contingency fees and the percentage of contingency fees um, that go to uh, successful attorneys. Nationally, MPL premiums have been falling since 2005 and are now back to levels of the mid 90s. Yes, that, you know, that is basically true, but why? The reason is because real tort reforms have worked and because they work, insurance carriers, and remember the majority of physicians in the United States are insured by mutual companies that they essentially own. The doctor's company is a reciprocal company. We're owned by our members. We have no independent profit motive. So insurance companies respond by basing rates on the risk and cost, cost of litigation, and in fact, have lowered premiums. Now let's, let's put the context of Texas in a national, uh, a national uh, frame. This is data that TDC provided to RAND, but the, and this is representing a decade of our claims experience. So it's not distorted by a single year. This is a full decade of claims experience. And I do want to emphasize, this is RAND publication. This, this data has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine and in Health Affairs. TDC has no editorial input whatever on RAND's publications. But this, this is, this is, so this is from RAND, although using TDC data, because we have so much data as a national, as the largest physician or national insurer. So what you see here are uh, the specialties ranked from most likely to be sued to least, uh, most likely to be sued on the bottom to uh, least likely to be sued here. The red bars, the total of the red and blue bars represent the likelihood of any of any claim. So you can see that, for example, neurosurgery and uh, thoracic cardiac surgery, it's almost 20% annually, annually, meaning that the average, the average physician in those specialties has one claim every five years. Or alternatively, if you're sitting at a table with five neurosurgeons, then one of them is in active litigation. And in fact, over the past five years, all of them have been in active litigation. But in a, take another look at the colors here. The blue bars represent claims for which an actual indemnity was paid. The red bars represent claims litigated through the system for which no indemnity resulted in being paid. So you can look at those red bars essentially represent, if you don't wanna use the term frivolous litigation, then you must use the term fruitless litigation at great cost, at great pain and suffering, both for the physician and certainly for the patient. Um, we go through this exercise that results in no payment to the, to the patient. Rand did something else with the data. It basically extrapolated the data for claims frequency that you saw on the last slide and extrapolated that to the career of, an, of a physician. So it extrapolated over essentially a 30 to 35 year period of time. So again, we can look at neurosurgery at the top. So the average neurosurgeon spends 25%, about a quarter of their career, defending active claims. Think about that. A quarter of their career is spent in active litigation. And again, the red and the blue bars are paid claims and unpaid claims. So the blue bar represents the uh, essentially 
20% of a, a neurosurgeon's career is spent defending claims that ultimately are found by the legal system to be without merit. This is really a very important context. And it brings us to the point of defensive medicine, high risk and low risk. For the purpose of this slide, they just, the RAND just defined high risk as more risk than the median and low risk as less risk than the median. And you can see that there's virtually no such thing as low risk medicine. High risk specialties over the course of a physician's career have statistically 100% likelihood of producing a claim. Low risk, so-called low risk specialties over the course of a physician's career have an 80% chance of producing a claim. So when we say the medical, mal when you say, when, when the authors say the medical malpractice system is broken, I couldn't agree more. Focus down on Texas, which after all is ultimately the, the focus of the book. So what are some facts that we can use to put, to put, to put this in context? In the 10 years between 1989 and 1999, the average economic damage award in Texas, in Texas, quadrupled from $318,000 a year to $1,379,000 a year. Between 1995 and 2002, which is the period obviously just before the tort reforms were enacted, Texas doctors were sued about twice as frequently as doctors in other states on the average. Some counties in Texas averaged more than one claim for every doctor every year. Whole counties had more claims than doctors on an annual basis for a number of years in a row. And again, how much of this is, is valid medical error that's found, to be, uh, that's found to be the case by the courts themselves? 14%. 86% of all claims against Texas doctors in that period of time, and still true today, closed without indemnity payment. But of course, going through the litigation system has enormous costs and all of these claims have costs with them. Another example, in the four years before the 2003 reforms, 50% of Texas nursing homes were uninsured because they couldn't find or afford the coverage that was available. Moreover, the notion that this is somehow insurance company profiteering is, is which isn't precisely stated in the book, but I think it's sort of implicit in the analysis that these are all market forces. 13 physician liability insurers left the state or went bankrupt prior to 2003. 13 companies closed their shop in Texas because they couldn't, they, they basically found the Texas medicine to be uninsurable. There's a big discussion about what the other benefits of the uh, reforms are and the question about whether it brings uh, more doctors into the area. And again, we know in the crisis that many, many areas had limited access to a particularly highly impacted high risk specialties such as obstetrics, neurosurgery and orthopedic specialists. So what happened before and after? Well, let's look at the outcomes. And we asked the question, did the, because the authors asked the question, did the tort reform solve the problems of Texas healthcare? Well, of course, the answer is they can't solve all the problems of Texas healthcare. And indeed, the tort reforms weren't designed to solve all the problems of Texas healthcare. That is literally a Herculean task. Some of the issues at that time, highest rate of uninsured residents in the country, 
spending on hospital care ranked 41st in the United States. Emergency rooms and trauma centers in Texas were chronically underfunded and understaffed. Texas, Texas is another parameter. Texas is, it was in the bottom 10 states for immunization of children and seniors. But what, what, the, what the tort reforms were designed to do was to reduce the, the cost of claims and ultimately to reduce, uh, to reduce the number of fruitless claims. And were they successful? Extraordinarily successful. Physician insurance premiums have fallen by more than 50% after the reforms. And much of that decline came within two years of the reforms. They were profoundly successful. Three of the critical specialties that I alluded to earlier, OB, neurosurgery, and orthopedics, attracted hundreds of new doctors to the states in those specialties within two of 2003, the year the reforms passed, after falling for several years prior to 2003. In 2006, there were 4,000 applications for new medical licenses, 30% more than the state's single greatest growth year in history. And in the interest of time, I won't go through some of the technical issues, um, but I'd be glad with the technical issues with the analysis, but certainly I would be glad to, um, to discuss them in the question and answer um, question and answer. So my conclusion is that the tort reforms to, did exactly what they were intended to do. They reduced rates, they decreased the frequency of fruitless litigation, and they increased access to care. So. Good. Thank you. Thank you, and I, I look forward. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. Let me just uh, remind everybody we're running a little bit over and we've got a lot of questions coming in. So we'll try to be really brief here. Um, something I just want to remind everybody for our audience, you can ask questions of our panelists via social media using the hashtag uh, Cato Books or the pound sign, the hashtag Cato Books, uh, just one word. So feel free to send questions. We've got some great questions here. Let me let me um, um, start and let's just ask Dr. Hyman. I, I've been a doctor for 45 years. And as you pointed out, there have been three uh, so-called crises. First of all, what is a crisis? And I understand there's some tightening of the market now, but why do we have these ebb and flows over a period of time? Um, so, great question, Dr. Frist, uh, and I think the objective fact is that medical malpractice crises have been marked not by an increase in malpractice, because we don't have a great way of tracking that, but by an increase in medical malpractice premiums, similar to my first slide, and that causes all of the sort of distress for physicians over and above the distress of being sued or worrying about being sued. Uh, and has prompted, you know, legislative campaigns to enact tort reform. Uh, and about 30 states have caps on damages, nine in the most recent uh, crisis. And in terms of what causes it, I, I should say that the book is about the litigation system. It's not about the insurance system, except sort of incidentally. We talk a little bit about premiums because we have some evidence on that. None of us are actuaries. We're not insurance regulators. Uh, and so that's not the focus of the book. The focus of the book, because we're lawyers and law professors, is what's going on in the litigation system. If it 
experienced a sudden increase in the number of claims or a sudden increase in the payout per claim or runaway jury verdicts, then it would be much more plausible that the litigation system was driving what's going on in the insurance system. But we don't see that. Um, and we don't see that in states that had caps already, and we don't see that in states that didn't have caps. Uh, and the states that enacted caps in response are a sort of intermediate uh, group. Uh, so it's less plausible to us that the litigation system is driving the premium increases. Where we do talk about that, we say essentially that uh, there are factors that are internal to the insurance market, some of which Dr. Anderson has alluded to already, uh, that we think are powerful explanations that don't involve the litigation system. And let me just, on, on one specific issue, we never say anything in the book that suggests that insurance companies are profiteering uh, or are charging more than you would expect them to find in a competitive market. Uh, and we don't have any brief for the current way we're regulating insurance markets, nor do we make any suggestions that they should be regulated uh, to prevent what some people Let's, might call profit. Is there any, is there any, just again, very briefly, uh, because this isn't really a debate, but is there anything else that, that Dr. Anderson presented that, that you'd like to just either respond to, again, just take one thing, because I know there are a lot of, a lot of issues in there. <laughs> Uh, is there any one issue that jumps out at you? If not, I, I got other questions coming. Well, there, there were plenty. Um, uh, <laughs> and we could, I think, have a, a long and fruitful discussion about uh, many of those things. I already uh, said what I wanted to say about profiteering and yeah. whether we're yeah. focusing on insurance regulation. Um, so let me let me leave it at that. If we have time, okay. we can get let it. Me, let me, let me, let me, yeah, no, that's great. Let me just uh, jump into the questions. I got a question coming in from the audience from economics professor Shirley Schwarney from California State University in Northridge. And I quote, much of these data predate experience rating of physician malpractice premiums. How do you think experience rating and related efforts by malpractice insurers to reduce practice risk have affected practice risk and the value of malpractice caps? And with that question, I guess, Dr. Anderson, you want to you want to start with that? Sure. Well, let me just say, I, I don't think I would use 2003 as a cut point for experience rating. I, I think it's fair to say that insurance companies have used experience rating almost since their exception, inception. But there's a big, the likelihood of a physician being sued, you saw from the RAND data, approaches unity over a long enough period of time. The likelihood of having a valid claim is a tiny fraction of that. Insur physicians own most of the insurance companies as mutuals. They own most of the insurance companies that insure them. The insurance companies have to charge rates that are adequate for the exposures and the, the tide of frivolous claims drives a great deal of the cost. A physician-owned insurance company can tell the difference between true malpractice and either a malocurrence, an, a, a, an unexpected outcome that was not related to medical negligence, or just, a, a, again, we'll say fruitless claim, not frivolous claim. Well, we don't want to charge more to physicians who have one or two uh, minor claims along the way because that describes virtually all physicians. Uh, Dr. Hyman, any... so if I can just Dr. add, I, I certainly 
I certainly agree with Dr. Anderson that there are lots of unpaid claims uh, and the likelihood of a paid claim uh, and of unpaid claims varies dramatically by specialty. Uh, it's not in the book, but in other work using Illinois data, uh, we've done similar analysis to what you uh, saw Dr. Anderson present. Um, and I think, uh, you know, to circle back to uh, Professor Sforney's question, uh, loss prevention efforts and experience rating is what we would uh, hope and expect to find uh, to the extent uh, past claims predict future claims, past paid claims especially seem to predict future claims. Unpaid claims have some predictive effect, um, but it's not nearly as uh, high an increase. But there's huge specialty variation, which you need to take account of as well. You don't want a situation where you're treating every doctor who has a paid claim as a bad doctor, because if you're in certain specialties, you're going to get paid claims before you're done practicing. I got a, a question and a big question, it seems to be that uh, about caps um, on damages. And the question is, do caps on damages make patients less safe? You know, maybe because physicians take less care to avoid mistakes or more safe, possibly because caps expand access to care. Um, either one of you. Yeah, I don't think um, they have, I'll be oh. candid, I don't think they have any effect on making patients more or less safe. I think the notion that's implied in the book is that um, lowering, lowering the cap uh, reduces the aversive stimulus or reduces the stimulus to provide to practicing safer medicine and therefore may not be good for patients. The truth is the malpractice system is so third rail aversive to, to practicing physicians that move, moving the cap up or down doesn't make the system more or less uh, more or less attractive to physicians or change the way that they practice. Okay, they do practice Dr. defensive medicine. Yeah. Dr. Hyman? So we, we don't address that issue in the book. Uh, in other work, one of the co-authors, Professor Black, uh, has looked at uh, the rates of uh, patient safety indicators, PSIs, uh, in states before and after caps are enacted. And he finds certainly suggestive evidence that for some of the PSIs, uh, there's an increase after the cap, which is what economists would expect, um, but certainly not what doctors would hope for. Good. I have, we have a question again coming in from the audience. Um, uh, and again, thanks for sending your questions. And again, the, the book, everybody knows, is Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works, Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped. Um, uh, the question is, could both speakers comment on the question of accurate dollar valuation of non-economic damages? Is it more arbitrary than economic damages? And how does that affect both patients and, and doctors? Dr. Hyman, why don't I start with you and then Dr. Anderson. Yeah, so not, thank you, Dr. Friss. So non-economic damages sometimes uh, referred to more broadly as pain and suffering uh, are obviously less quantifiable uh, than the economic damages, which are essentially lost earnings and medical bills. Now, medical bills can be hard to quantify because for future expenses, you're making a prediction about how long the person's going to live, what medical treatment they're gonna receive, what it will cost, sometimes for things that haven't even been invented yet. And so there's squishiness on economic damages for things in the future, obviously significantly less so for the past. Although even here it can get complicated, right? Somebody who's paid 
a, a salary is in a different position than somebody who's an independent contractor working on commission. Um, but there's no question that uh, notwithstanding all of that, non-economic damages are inherently hard to quantify, you know, what what's a year of pain worth, um, what are, you know, the, the loss of relationship or consortium worth. Uh, in some work uh, that we mentioned briefly in the book, we do find a high correlation in jury verdicts between economic and non-economic damages. So there seems to be a sort of rule of thumb uh, that people are using to arrive at the total award. Um, it's not completely arbitrary, uh, but you know, plaintiff's lawyers understand this and they make films of a day in the life of the horribly injured person to try and get the jury to award more non-economic damages. Yeah, Dr. Anderson, what about non-economic damages, arbitrary uh, effect on patients uh, and doctors? Yeah, I think that is. I think that's one of the one of the one of the arguments in favor of caps because you then have a level playing field. Patients with patients, patients regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their income, so on and so forth, can receive the same amount of dollars for non-economic damages as adjusted by the cap. The advantage of, so why do it at all then? So if it's so great, why do it? Because it takes the lottery out of litigation and the lottery coupled with the contingency fee system is what makes our current system so nefarious and so inefficient. The cost of our system, the tort tax for our system is more than 50%, meaning that for every dollar that's awarded an injured patient, more than 50% of premiums go towards the transactional costs of getting that dollar. It's incredibly high tax. So it takes the lottery out and it removes um, and it, it makes it more, at least makes it more hard, at least horizontally equitable across the board. So is let the, me the, just yeah. add two points, right? The first is that certain uh, categories of the population, their damages are sort of non-economic or nothing, right? Uh, and so um, a, a mom that's not working outside the home, uh, young children and the elderly are not going to have lost wages. Uh, they may have medical bills, but for many of them, their damages skew heavily non-economic. And so the decision to cap non-economic damages particularly at a low level, is a decision that those cases shouldn't be moving forward, at least in our expensive fault-based system, okay? And, you know, you, you can say that's putting everybody on an equal playing field, but that's only if you ignore the distribution of damages. Let me ask you both uh, on the non-economic damages. Uh, put your, your crystal ball out before you, and it, since the, the 1970s, California has, has capped non-economic damages at $250,000. The state is going to have a referendum on the ballot next year, 2022, that would increase those caps. Uh, crystal ball, will the referendum pass? And if so, what effect would that have? Dr. Anderson? Crystal ball, the referendum won't pass. I mean, MICRA has been under continuous attack by the plaintiff's bar since it was passed in 1976. It's been defeated several times at the ballot box most recently in 2014, and many, many times by the legislature. So no, I don't think it will pass. I can tell you what it'll cost if it passed. We estimate that it would probably would require a doubling 
of the of the rates for medical malpractice insurance in California. We've done the math. Yeah, Dr. Hyman, uh, so Dr. Fritz, if, if I was good at predicting the future, I'd work for a hedge fund or on Wall Street rather than being <laughs> a law professor. Um, oh, what, but, is, what impact? Yeah, what impact would it I, have if it did? I, I think I would actually come at it the other way, right? Uh, California's cap shows what happens when you fail to index your cap for inflation, which is the, they become increasingly strict over time as inflation basically 250,000 in the mid 1970s is the equivalent of just over a million dollars the last time I looked at it in uh, 2021. Um, now, nobody has been enacting caps at the $1 million level, uh, but that's what the cap would be if it remained as stringent now as it had been back in the 1970s. Yeah. You know, can I Let just me... respond to that for one second about California? Yeah. Very quickly. Very quickly. I'll just, very quickly. The, the average malpractice claim in California, non-economic damage or economic damages have risen at two or three times the rate of inflation. So we, the trial bar is very successful in arguing up the cost of economic damages. And that more than makes up for the, the, the limitation, but economic damages at least have some basis to reality. It more than makes up, however, uh, for the, the cap on economic damages. And one last point, the deepest deep pocket in the history of deep pockets, the US government put a $250,000 cap on a very small number of plaintiffs, namely the, the families of 9-11, and felt that the victim's fund could not be satisfactorily established, funded by the US government with a non-economic damage cap of, of more than $250,000. I think that gives you a sense of, of the reality of what these caps mean. Let me keep things moving just uh, because I got a number of questions. You got so many questions coming in, I only have a few more minutes. Let me ask you, um, and, and Dr. Hyman, you can start with it about whether or not this is a patient's rights issue. I, in the foreword uh, of the book, former uh, Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle writes, and I quote, he has supported and advocated for the rights of victims of medical error because, and I quote, the death or serious injury of a family's primary breadwinner usually has a catastrophic economic impact and can even lead to bankruptcy, close quotation. So I guess that leads me to, to ask, um, is medical malpractice a patient's rights issue? Dr. Hyman, I guess I'll start with you and then yeah, Dr. Anderson. I, I, uh, first of all, we, we didn't mention Senator Daschle yet, so I want to thank him for uh, having done the foreword and uh, we're very proud to have two Senate majority leaders now associated with the book, uh, Senator Daschle for the forward and Senator Frist, Dr. Frist, uh, for this book session today. Um, I actually think medical malpractice is a patient's rights issue, but it's also a doctor's rights issue, right? I mean, you don't want a system that uh, is mistreating anyone. You want a system that is quickly and ideally inexpensively sorting out these issues and getting compensation to people uh, that need it when something bad happens. And our current system isn't doing that. Um, this is not a brief uh, that suggests that there's you know, a right cap level. We don't think caps are a particularly good solution. We don't say that uh, caps have all of the dire effects that uh, its opponents suggest. And 
we're uh, very skeptical about the benefits other than the ones that we've already highlighted. That is that it does reduce the number of claims and it does reduce the payout per claim. And the principal beneficiaries of that are physicians who are paying malpractice premiums. Uh, I think there's a lot of things we ought to do to make the system better, but we need to diagnose it correctly before we head down that road. Dr. Anderson, and, and I would you, just say, you, go ahead. Yeah, I just say very briefly, I, I mean, no one could argue with Senator Daschle's uh, plea that um, death or serious injury can have devastating effects on a, on a family. But the ones that he alludes to in this example are economic damages. They are not affected by the caps we're talking about. There's no limit on the recovery of lost wages and so on and so forth. So the truth is we share his concern, but it's not relevant to non-economic damage caps. Dr. Hyman is the, uh, I used to think a lot about it when I was in, in the United States Senate with uh, Tom Daschle about medical malpractice reform. Uh, what is the federal role? I guess I'd like to hear from both of you. What is the federal role versus the state role in, in reform? Um, your opinion or, or sort of what does the literature say? Dr. Hyman. Yeah, so look, I, I don't do constitutional law um, and I know enough about preemption to be dangerous, uh, which doesn't <laughs> distinguish me from most of my law professor colleagues, frankly. Uh, but I, I think the short, the short response I would make is the federal government buys an awful lot of health care and it ought to be able to set terms and conditions associated with that, including trying to figure out a patient compensation system that would work better for the elderly than the one that we currently have. Uh, there's a chapter in the book on the elderly that basically uh, points out how uh, they their claiming rate was starting to look like the rest of the population and then CAPS basically interrupts that trend and to a significant extent reverses it. Uh, in terms of whether you know the Commerce Clause provides enough basis uh, for a nationwide CAP, I'll leave that to uh, the con law people. Dr. Anderson, comment on the, well, the federal role. I know it's it's um, it's not the dominant right. role, but we do have 100 United States senators who are probably saying there is a big federal role. What do you, what do you perceive yeah. being right in the middle of, of these issues for so many years? Well, first, I would echo all of the qualifiers uh, from Professor Hyman in terms of my opinion. But I but I will say this: I think that medicine has become really a national specialty. I think we see this in the way medicines practice. We see it in consolidation that occurs across the country. Most standards of care, although in theory they're set by state, in truth they look the same across the whole country. So I think there is, and medical licensure is state, but the truth is in the area of telemedicine and movement of the population, it makes sense to have national licensure. For all of those reasons, I think there's an argument to be made for federal caps. Do, Dr. Anderson, the, the title of the book, Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped, um, but if you look back at reform over the last 30 years, uh, are there some reforms that have really helped and been beneficial in, in your mind? I think the one in Texas helped. I mean, that was the argument I, I tried to make earlier. In other words, it did exactly what it was designed to do. Yeah. It, it reduced disproportionate premiums borne by Texas physicians, particularly high risk Texas physicians. And again, high risk, not being because they were bad doctors, but high risk being because the medicine that they practiced was high risk. 
even this semantics is completely wrong. There shouldn't be high-risk specialties. There are high-risk diseases. There are high-risk illnesses. But we actually say neurosurgeons, cardiac surgeons are in a high-risk specialty. They're not the ones that are at risk, but they bear the liability uh, risk and a premium tax that's far disproportionate um, to the likelihood of medical error. And Dr. Hyman, I, we mentioned California. Um, I know you hit Texas and we talked about Texas. Uh, what, what kind of reforms have worked in the past in either your opinion or that you might have written about in the book? Um, so one of the reforms uh, that's sort of implicit in the book uh, is the National Practitioner Data Bank, uh, which was enacted by Congress back in the late 1980s. And it was successful because it gave us a window into a lot of information that was simply not available. Uh, that is uh, paid claims uh, broken down with physician identifiers. It's not, you can't figure out which physician it is, but you can follow the same physician over time and across state borders. And you can look at variation in claiming by states. And there is significant variation in claiming across states. Uh, you can do a little bit with specialty. Um, there isn't quite as much data publicly available as one would like, uh, but we know a lot more about the nationwide medical malpractice system because of the National Practitioner Data Bank. So as usual, making data available uh, has all sorts of benefits, not always the ones that people were thinking about at the outset. Yeah, Dr. Anderson, on the data issue, uh, how often do providers collect data? Do states collect data on medical errors, medical mistakes? Um, is it often frequent, comprehensive, or do we need to do a lot better in terms of uh, data collection and, and reporting? Yeah, um, almost all states collect data information and, and may often take action or may take action on the basis of, of medical malpractice litigation. But very few states have any systematic data on medical error. Um, I think, in fact, if I recall, Congress passed in the early 2000s a voluntary national reporting system for medical error. I uh, believe that was written into law. Um, but in truth, it hasn't, it hasn't been effective um, at, at, at drawing in uh, this kind of information. So I think the answer to your question is there's very little uh, collection, systematic collection of near misses, if we want to call yep. those that, near misses or medical errors. Good. Uh, listen, the book, um, Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works, Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped. Dr. David Hyman, on behalf of, of yourself and the authors, uh, thank you for being with us. Dr. Richard Anderson, to you as well. Let me turn it back to Michael. And thank you, Dr. Ferris, for guiding us through this discussion. Uh, for those of you who are interested, you can pick up a copy of Medical Malpractice Litigation at store.cato.org or at amazon.com. I want to thank not only our the participants in this discussion, but everyone in the audience uh, who tuned in and who asked us questions. We had a lot of questions come in. Um, I, I apologize, we were not able to get to all of them, but a video recording of this event will be available on Cato's webpage and you can continue to ask questions of the authors through social media using the hashtag CatoBooks. Thank you all very much, and we'll see you again soon.